Well, it's my privilege to welcome you this morning and thank you for joining our live stream. Trust that many of you had a fruitful time together as a Sunday school class with uh, your Zoom connections. And um, I do have a couple of announcements that I would like to make. And uh, one of them having to do with something you might already be aware of with uh, our most recent uh, email update. And that is that this Wednesday we plan on meeting together uh, for our regular Wednesday evening meeting. But to do that electronically uh, with the same means that we use to meet together as Sunday school classes. That's using uh, a Zoom connection. And uh, we'll use the same means to email you that you received uh, that notification. I think that was Friday morning. And we'll send you the the Zoom invite um, tomorrow or Tuesday. But you'll have it before Wednesday evening. That'll be at 6 o'clock. And um, there'll probably be a a curve adjusting to everything. Especially this will be the biggest meeting we've done uh, in that way with that format yet. Uh, but I think that most of us now are familiar with it, having uh, done that for several weeks with our Sunday school classes. And then another announcement I'd like to make is um, some help, some things that you can help us with uh, here at the church. We've been using the time to organize some things here in the office. uh, And we've learned how that situation as it is, Uh, communication is not as easy as it once was and we're working on a way to be able to communicate with everybody uh, more efficiently than we've done before and uh, it's a good time for us to clean up all our records that is your phone numbers addresses um, even your birthdays and this goes for your home whole household so we've been working on a way to do that easily We're going to send you some information with some links and some forms that you can fill out and help us with that on this end. And that way, whenever we want to let everybody know something, we'll have the capacity to do that without uh, you receiving multiple emails from different email lists um, and things like that. But be looking for that in the next few days, and uh, we'll be glad to be able to put that together uh, for you. Let's turn in our Bibles uh, to John chapter 12. And if you, uh, perhaps you recall, last week I mentioned a harmony of the Gospels. And uh, many publishers put these together, but it's a way of arranging all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and columns where you can look at each of them chronologically. And if we're taking chapter 12 that we're looking at today, and you were to look at what the other gospel writers are saying in a chronological format, you're going to find that what we're reading today is not found in the other three. But what is happening prior to and after, you're going to find that they are speaking about Matthew, Mark, and Luke, while John is not. And that'll come in handy to help us organize what we're looking at. But first, let me go ahead and read the passage We'll ask the Lord for help to understand and obey it. And then we'll work on it a verse at a time. This is John chapter 12, verse 20 through 26. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. 
So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat fall into the earth and die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, our Bibles are open. We're gathered in our homes, a few of us here in this room. We ask that you speak to us. We ask that you open to us the mysteries of your word, the things that are difficult for us to understand, but open our eyes to who you are and what you came here to do and what you continue to do for us even today. Help us to understand, Lord, and help us to obey wherever we fall short as seen in this passage. Lord, give us what we need to make us more like you. We thank you again for our church, for our gathering together. Bless now our time in your word together. And we ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, we're still in chapter 12. And if you recall, this will will mean you have to remember back at least two weeks. Uh, We started out in chapter 12 uh, with the story of a a dinner party uh, for Jesus. And there were several guests there. Lazarus was there along with his sisters. This is where Mary would anoint his feet with very uh, expensive ointment. Wipe his feet with her hair. After this, the record tells us, the next day we would study, this would have been Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus. Where palm branches were being waved and people were shouting Hosanna. But by the time we get to verse 20. Uh, We've already skipped over a lot of things that the other gospel authors include. Uh, This would be Monday of the Passion Week, where we're reading today. And in that case, the other gospel authors mention the cursing of the fig tree, uh, and along with some other things that take place, including a cleansing of the temple. It was actually the second cleansing of the temple. Uh, The first cleansing of the temple is only mentioned by John and early in his ministry. We saw that uh, within the first weeks of our study and how that Jesus had made for himself a whip out of cords that he found and drove out the money changers, turned over the tables, threw the coins everywhere. Um, This was not unlike that. We don't read about a whip. Uh, But this was a second cleansing of the temple. And this takes place seemingly prior to what we read in verse 20. What John does give us, though, and what we don't see in the other three records, is this substitution here having to do, and this again is unique to John, of men that come to see Jesus who are Greeks. Um, And what this does... And this is, again, speculation because we don't have 
black and white words in any of the gospel records as to what butts up against the other on a chronological list. But it would seem to make sense that what happens here in these verses, John 12, 20 through 26, may very well be the result of what happens in the other gospel records when the temple is cleansed. We'll get to that in just a moment. Let's read verse 20 again. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. That's what John tells us. We don't know where these men came from. We don't know why they were coming. They weren't Hebrew, they were Greek. And given the way they were described, it makes sense that they were probably not full proselytes, but rather what were called God-fearers. The difference was that the God-fearers worshipped the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they were not full proselytes in that they did not observe all the Judaistic law and traditions all the way to the point of circumcision. Some were, some weren't, and when they were, that's usually mentioned because it's something that Israel thought of as being very important. So not to see that gives us the indication they're probably of the God-fearing type. What is clear is that John regards their coming as significant to his record. These are written that you might believe. This is important to that argument. Verse 21, so these came to Philip, the Greeks did. Philip was from Bethsaida in Galilee. They asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. That's their official request. So here's how you could match up the two of these. If if we're speculating here as to what one has to do with the other, the cleansing of the temple and then the arrival of these Greeks. What Jesus had done in both of these was to restore the function of the court of the Gentiles to the purpose for which it was created to begin with. You read of how Jesus had said, you've turned my father's house, a house of prayer, into a house of, of merchandise, which was not what it was created to do. That, that temple complex was set apart to be where God would meet with his people, where prayers were offered, And by sacrifice, they had access to God. And at a certain space, with a certain distance, even Gentiles were given the opportunity to look in on what's going on. And this goes all the way back to Genesis 12. We can see that the covenant with Abraham, God was going to make for himself a people and bless that nation in order to be a blessing to the rest of the world. The whole point of his working with the Jews was to show the world who he was. So to take the court of the Gentiles and use it as a marketplace, which was a dirty job, well, let's, if we're going to make a mess, let's make a mess in the court of the Gentiles. They don't matter anyway. In fact, most of them consider them to be animals. So Jesus is infuriated again at this. And restores it. And perhaps if you happen to be a Gentile. And you're watching any of this. Maybe you've got some questions for the man who has the guts enough to take on the Jewish system. To make room for the Gentiles. Greeks. That's not written. But perhaps that might be what's going on here. So you may recall what happened. This is another way we could link these things together. Where we left off in verse 19, if you just back up a bit, 
Verse 19 of chapter 12, at the end of what took place with the triumphal entry, you've got the Pharisees saying in verse 19, you see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone out after him. They're using the word world. Jews using the term world probably aren't thinking of Gentiles, at least the Gentile world. But that's exactly what we start in verse 20. Here come some Greeks. The whole world is responding. And what you've got here, if you put it all together, you've got the man who came into the world as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. He's now being followed by sinners of the world. It looks as if everything is falling right into place. And if you add to that what we looked at last week with the rending of the veil after it is finished and how 1,500 years worth of stay out has changed with a come on in, that includes the Gentiles as well. For centuries, if God wanted to speak to the world, He spoke in Hebrew. Well, now He's speaking in other languages. The New Testament is written in Greek and has been translated into every tongue and tribe. So, when we see Jesus saying what He's about to say, that the hour had come. Indeed it has. Verse 22. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Told them what? Well that the Greeks had come. And were asking to see him. It's interesting that they went to Philip first. We don't know why. All we know again was where he came from. And that is a Greek name. And maybe he was bilingual. Maybe they knew him ahead of time. But as far as any of these details. We just can't know for sure including why he hesitated and went to Andrew before the two of them went to Jesus. We just don't know. We'll have to ask them one day. But what's curious about the, the situation, more so than that, is that there's no record that Jesus ever gave these Greek men an audience or sent a reply back to them through Philip and Andrew. John records no specific question from these men or a specific reason for their request to interview Jesus. And at this point in the record, they've actually disappeared from the conversation altogether. Though they may be there, they may not. What Jesus is about to say in verse 23 to them, it could be in response and directed to the Greeks, but likely by the way the sentence is structured, He's speaking directly to Philip and Andrew. Maybe the rest of the disciples are standing there too. Maybe they're not. Maybe a crowd is beginning to gather because by the next paragraph, there's going to be a crowd who's going to hear the, the voice of God. Some will think it's thunder. But here again, you've got another crowd. Add another crowd to chapter 12. Lots of crowds now. But what we've got is just a group of people that we don't know exactly who makes up the group. And that happened a lot when Jesus would speak. Others would listen as he spoke specifically to individuals. So maybe this is just for the disciples, but others are listening. What does he say in verse 23? Jesus answered them. Whether that includes the Greeks or not, but we know for sure, at least it makes the most sense, that it, it has to do with Andrew and Philip. He answered them, The hour has come, for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is important. And this verse is connected down with verse 24. 
they all seem to be a complete thought. It's tough to pull them apart. And verse 24 includes the double truly formula to make sure everyone who's standing there and listening pays attention. It's like saying uh, absolutely true, undeniably true, double true. Listen to me. This is important. So I want to make sure we assign that value to these words that are being said. And the first thing he says has to do with a mention that the hour had come. Not the first time we've heard about this hour, but the first time we've heard him say that the hour has come. First time we heard him say something like this, it was in chapter 2. He was speaking to his mother. He told her his hour had not yet come. Then later on, in a conversation with his brothers, he tells them the same thing. The hour has not yet come. Then later, there's going to be an attempt to, to take him by force. And Jesus moves somewhere else. John explains to us, no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. That would happen another time. Same drill. Nobody touches him because his hour had not yet come. But now, Jesus is saying his hour had come and that it was the point in time where he was going to be glorified. So, pause just for a minute. I always want to include everyone. There's a crowd standing there. What do they think of this? Now, if they're familiar with Jesus, maybe they've heard speak of this hour. Maybe they've heard speak of that this hour has not yet come. But now he's saying it has come. So maybe they begin to be excited. Now, the, the mood seems to be different than the day before during the triumphal entry. But what does that mean to them? If they're at all flaming back into uh, some type of excitement, the idea that they might be getting what they hoped they would, but heretofore haven't received yet, they're going to be sorely disappointed by what he says next. So, okay, we'll unpause. We know what the crowd is thinking or guessing what they might be thinking. What does this mean that the hour has come and he is to be glorified? Well, everything that we read from here on out is amplified by by what was just said. In other words, what we're going to read interprets that statement that the hour has come that the Son of Man will be glorified. The Greeks want to see Jesus. That's the purpose for John writing this paragraph. It starts with people asking to see Jesus. And it's as if Jesus, hearing this, that they are there, it's almost as if this statement of the hour has come has been triggered by the inclusion of a group that hasn't been included just yet. As if to say... That we're almost there. The hour has begun. The hour's not spent, but the hour has begun. And by the end of that hour, which amounts to a week, as far as what we're reading, and the death, burial, resurrection, and then later the ascension of Christ, people have been talking about wanting to see Jesus. We've been using the term, come and see But at this point, no one has been able to see Jesus for who he really is. Not yet. They've been close. And John has been careful to tell us. Now, we didn't understand this, but we did after he was glorified. 
Some things have to happen before people will put it all together. And it's going to involve his death, which seems to be the exact opposite thing that would need to happen for him to be glorified. How do you glorify a dead man? Well, that's what's involved in what Jesus is going to say. He's going to involve us in a mystery, a paradox, something that doesn't seem to make sense on the surface, but once investigated, it makes sense of it all. These people aren't privy to what is coming in the next several hours of Christ's life, death and burial and resurrection. But when they are, and when the Holy Spirit comes, the transformation will be huge. You'll have an entire book of Acts where Peter and the apostles articulate a clear gospel, exactly understanding why Jesus was here and what everyone needs to do about it. But until here, at this point... They're not able to see clearly. That won't persist. So Jesus is going to explain it to us. Here's a great place for me to give you your points. Because the next three verses are going to give us our three points. For the messages, how we organize the whole thing. Here they are. Number one, dying is the way to bear fruit. Number two, losing is the way to finding Number three, serving is the way to be honored. I'll give them to you one more time and then we'll mention them again each as as we go through them. Dying is the way to bear fruit. Losing is the way to finding. Serving is the way to be honored. So let's look at verse 24. You'll see the first one right there. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone But if it dies, it bears much fruit. One of the first mysteries of seeing Christ for who he is, is to understand that dying is the way to bear fruit. How many of you remember the first time you planted something? It depends on your background, or maybe your age. Maybe the first thing you planted was uh, compulsory. It had to do with working with with mom or dad with me it wasn't compulsory though uh, you you didn't want to not be a participant this was in Sunday school and we had a line of Dixie cups and a bag of dirt and a bag of beans and you'd plant a bean in the Dixie cup full of dirt and write your name on the cup and sit it in the window and by the time you got back I think this happened between uh, Palm Sunday and Easter the bean has sprouted it's usually best to leave it in the window in Sunday school because, you know, you want to mess with it or look to make sure it's sprouted or roots are growing and you'll, you'll ruin the whole thing. But I remember watching that sprout come up and then the, the two halves of the beans were attached to the stalk and the, the covering of the, the bean had fallen down and it's laying on the dirt itself. And if this is foreign to any of you or uh, your kids just aren't there yet and you don't know what preacher's talking about there's a fine youtube time lapse bean growing video you should be able to find it pretty easy 25 days worth you watch in a few minutes whole thing sprouts and grows but to watch with your eyes what jesus is saying here with this analogy brings you in on what he's trying to say and uh, as as far as what it, it it's meant 
to convey in the story that we're reading. In planting a seed, the individual grain is dropped into the ground, which carries the idea of being entombed. It's buried, in other words. The grain then dies, as is said here in the scripture. And I'll go ahead and tell you, I had trouble with that as a kid. Because I'm thinking, no, if the seed sprouts, the seed's not dead. Because inside there's the spark of life, and it's got the food store, and it'll use up that food store in order to sprout. But if the thing dies, it's not going to sprout. I mean, it, there's sometimes when you plant and the stuff doesn't sprout because the seed is dead. And later I realized, well, this is figuratively speaking here. With people who didn't have access to all those things that I studied and listened to as a kid who just thought too much sometimes. This picture here is that of entombment, of casting the seed away under the surface of the dirt, walked away from, and then and only then that spark of mystery takes place, that it becomes this resurrected plant after its encasement falls away. The many grains that are produced are fruit of this resurrection. And the principle here is that death is the necessary condition for the generation of life. Although on a molecular level, there is still life in that seed. I can remember hearing tales of... Uh, certain wheat that was found in King Tut's tomb that was sprouted later and uh, some uh, enterprising man had a whole grain business called King Tut's wheat. Well, that was later found to be a sham and dishonest. But I did learn in reading for this that there was date palm seeds, were date palm seeds, found in Masada in Israel. About 2,000 years old that they have been able to sprout and have grown into date palm trees. Uh, the most famous has been named Methuselah. And there are several others that are named. But that will tell you that seeds have been made by our Creator wondrously enough to be preserved with the ability to sprout. It, for at least as long as He's been gone from this earth thereabout. So... What is true of the plant kingdom and this illustration is meant to match up with what's true in our everyday lives. We're supposed to hear this story and understand that that's the way we are as well. Um, whatever we want to become, academically, athletically, musically, whatever, you want to be great at something? Death is going to need to be involved in that. What do I mean by that? Well, the kids that I grew up with that amounted to anything, um, some of them that amounted to a great deal, were studying while the rest of us were playing. And we thought, well, it was a waste of a good afternoon, time to play. Well, they were what my mother said I should do. They were applying themselves, Right? Um, that's true across the board. Um, you just think of all the things that required discipline to acquire. Um, 
I don't know if David remembers this, probably does. I'm going to use a, a, an example here. We made a visit one time um, to one of these hospice facilities over in Raleigh. And uh, we got some lunch. I think it was at the, the, the farmer's market. And then we made this visit. And in the lobby of this place was this beautiful black piano. And I asked the lady at the desk if it would be all right if someone who knew how to play could play. And she said, do you know how to play? I said, no, I don't. But I know somebody who does. And we made the visit, and on the way out, David played at this piano. And um, I don't know what it was. It probably had to do with a little emotion involved in the, the visit. And just hearing a piano in an office setting there were some folks from offices in the back that came out to listen but I wasn't the only one that had to wipe my eye before it was all over and uh, David's heard me say this before I would trade in all that I know about drums and all kinds of other stuff even the the, the ridiculously short amount of time I tried to learn how to play the guitar if I could just do with my fingers what I wanted them to do with a piano. But I can't. Because these fingers have never died to that cause. I, I, I can't set my fingers free. Like David was able to set his free. David's put in the time. Um, certain other options in life had to be set aside in order to apply himself to what he does, and he does so beautifully. That's the same with anything in life. Um, marriage is a good example. Anyone who's been married to another person long enough to know realizes that that's where two people's lives to an extent die so that one life together can live. If it's not set up that way, it doesn't work. And what Jesus is telling us here. And what is true in the realm of nature and true in the everyday walk of our lives, it is very much true in the spiritual life. And the spiritual life is governed by the same paradoxes. Things that don't look right on the surface, but when they're investigated, they make all the sense in the world. In fact, the paradox definition is this. A seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. Some young folks thinking, you mean I've got I've to die to myself in order to live together with someone I want to marry? I'm not so sure that makes sense. Well, some who've been married a very long time and very happy would say it's the absolute truth. In God's kingdom, it's... it's it's the same. I mean, isn't God's power made perfect in our weakness? If we want to be rich, doesn't the Bible say we need to become poor in spirit? Do we want to be first? We must be willing to be last. If we want to rule, we have to serve. If we want to live, really live, the Scriptures and Jesus is telling us that we need to be ready to die, to take up our cross and follow Him. People listening that day probably think this man's insane no he's not what Jesus is saying about himself 
he's also applying to us. He's going to be glorified by the Father, and that involves him taking on the very curse of sin. Jesus, and what he's saying, the, the, the grain of wheat that falls in the ground to, to be resurrected and to bear fruit, he's talking of his own death, his own resurrection, but he's applying this to us. As we read further, you'll see that. Our lives and mirror of his must be about something other than just trying not to die. You know, some people, you almost wonder if they live their lives uh, fighting the inevitable end, which is death. If that's your number one goal in life, to never die, well, your life's going to be a miserable failure because that's exactly what's going to happen to all of us unless the Lord returns before that happens. Unless there's death, the vast possibilities inside us, spiritually speaking, will never be released. We will shrivel and remain alone. And those who are awakening to the spiritual potential, you know, these are the ones that just seem to have something we don't. They've been further down the road. They've spent more time in the valley. They've been hurt. And that's only drawn them closer to their Lord. They have understood or are beginning to that we live by dying. I don't know if you've met anyone or known someone who seemed to be this, the brightest spiritually of their lives at the end of their life. Then you know what this is all about. This is what Paul would talk about. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. Your reasonable service. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That you may be able to discern the will of God. And what is good and acceptable and perfect. You do that. Some people won't like it. That bothers people sometimes. Someone who is not interested in what the world seems to be absolutely headlong after bothers people. And it might even be that the ones that are closest to you, they'll like it the least to die to oneself. And really, and this, this is just something I, I, I thought was, was profitable to add. Really, this right here is where the whole world converges at a point of division between faith and unbelief. Either you believe that a man can die for the sins of the world, that one man's death can bring everlasting life to a whole planet, and by the same token that a person can affect hundreds, if not thousands of people on this earth by denying themselves and living for others, or they believe that that's the most absurd thing they've ever heard. That the only thing this life is good for is making the best of it for yourself. That that's what life is for, to be lived and used up for oneself. There's two different ways of thinking of things. And this is where you have some who buy it and some who reject it. It's a mystery. It's a paradox. It doesn't make sense on the surface, but as you read, it begins to make sense all the more. All right, we looked at dying is the way to bear fruit. Let's look at losing is the way to finding. 
That's verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. That's the second paradox. And Jesus started talking about his hour and what he was going to do. Be put into the ground, resurrected, fruitful for eternal life. But as we read it, this is starting to more and more apply to those who are standing around. He's now bringing up the principle that you try to to hold on to something tight, you're going to lose it. You give it up as if it doesn't matter, you'll actually gain it in eternity. Verse 25 is the application of the previous analogy. The man who attempts to preserve his life will lose it. It's true of Jesus, but it's true of all of us as well. The word translated loses is often translated destroys. That's why J.B. Phillips would translate this. The man who loves his own life will destroy it. That's what John's trying to help us with here. Understand that loving one's life is a self-defeating process. It destroys the very life it seeks to retain. Now here's something else that's interesting. If, if those of you like picking apart your verses of Scripture down to the specific words... If you count them, in verse 25, there are three words, life, translated life. Whoever loves his life, it's one, loses it, and whoever hates his life, that's two. In this world, will keep it for eternal life, that's three. Three words we've got for life, but there's two Greek words there. The first two are the words suke in the Greek, and it really denotes one's own understanding of their own personality, who you think you are. But the last use of it is the word zoe, which is a more general term for life, but the one that John the Evangelist has been using the whole time he's been writing to talk about the life that Jesus brings and the life that we can have in, in, in him. And it's usually accompanied with the word eternal. So it's as if Jesus is using these separate Greek words. We've got to be a good student to pull that out of what we see in English. But he has said... If you love your person, you'll lose it. Whoever hates his person in this world will keep it for eternity, eternal life. And the word hatred right here doesn't necessarily mean contempt in life or some kind of suicidal impulse. It just means that he decides to make himself not the focus of his interest. He doesn't think less of himself. He just thinks of himself less. Does that make sense? You've got to read that perfect or you'll, you'll mess it up. It's not that he belittles himself. He just doesn't make a big deal of himself. The same theme comes up in all four Gospels in different places, in different settings, on different days. Which means Jesus taught this a lot. And what he's teaching here is very simple. It's always the same. A willingness for the sake of Jesus to give up things that in and of themselves, they're not objectionable, even on the contrary. Things in a different uh, context, we should love. They're important. God gave them to us, like our mom and our dad. But for, for this point, they've got to take a back seat to Jesus. And his priority in your life, just like whatever Jesus wanted, took a backseat to the will of his Father. We see that accompanied with great 
drops of blood and sweat on his brow when he's asking if there's any other way we can do this other than the way it's been planned. Nevertheless, my will but your will be done. So dying is the way to bear fruit. Losing is the way to finding. And number three, serving is the way to be honored. That's verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Serving leads to honor. So, so far, if you're keeping track of the way this focus has changed, it started out with Jesus talking about his hour in verse 23 and 24. That had to do with Jesus alone. Then in verse 25, about losing your life and keeping it. That works for Jesus and that works for us. But in verse 26, he's talking about us following him. This doesn't have to do with Jesus, though in a way it does. But the emphasis, this is on us. This is how we uh, not just understand, but obey what we're reading in this passage. Jesus is talking about himself, but of those that will follow him. Our focus on self must be displaced by another. Now, if you're not going to make a big deal out of yourself, that's not to be left as just a, a, an empty box or vacuum. That, that position of number one priority, that's to be replaced by Jesus. That puts us in the position of a follower. Instead of loving our own life and placing it as our top priority... We place our life in service to Jesus, the Son of God. Someone had said about this, this verse here, verse 26, The follow me is the sum of our duty, and the where I am is the sum of our reward. I like that. Because that's true. To be with Jesus is to be heir to the kingdom. What we do is follow. What he does is allow us to be with him. Being where the Lord is involves suffering. As a servant is never above his master. Means losing one's life for the master's sake. Now this next thought is my attempt to pull all this together. And to make sense of this paragraph why did john write chapter 12 verses 20 through 26 what do we know as far as an understanding of them and what are we to do to obey them how does this all work well here's how it works boiled down greeks came to see jesus they wanted to see him how would they see him because it's not possible that they see him yet he's not yet been glorified so when they see him, how will they see him? Through his death for their sins. If they see him at all. To see Jesus is to see him in your place. Right? That's, that, that's receiving the gospel. To see Jesus clearly is to see him as your savior and in need of his atoning work on your behalf. So that's how these Greeks will see Jesus. Or they won't see him at all. They see him as that buried seed resurrected and they are the fruit. That's how they'll see Jesus. 
question regarding the rest of what we just read. How will those around us see Jesus? Inasmuch as we die to ourselves and live unto Him. That to the lost world is about as paradoxical, mysterious, scratch your head as they're ever going to find. Why in the world would somebody give their life over to this man named Jesus and, 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 and do for him rather than doing for themselves? To spin themselves up for the business for which he died. Why would they do this? Only as we die to ourselves and live for Christ will those around us see him for who he is. And not without the word, but to live according to the word. To see Jesus is to see a paradox. And none of this makes sense without Jesus. You take Jesus out of the Bible, none of it makes sense. This afternoon, I have the privilege of officiating a funeral. And because of this virus, it's a private funeral. Funerals have, have been odd and strange since this started. There's nothing about a funeral that works with social distancing but this funeral will take place we're going to lay to rest one of this church's members and i do think as i thought of her numerous times in studying for this message that she knew what this is about perhaps more than a lot of us because this lady gave of herself spending massive amounts of her time with people who would have otherwise easily been forgotten and if you're looking at the last section or last phrase of this paragraph we just read if anyone serves me I think she did the father will honor him how do you find honor in the eyes of God by working for his son. The way to honor is the way of service. Makes you think of others who've given their lives for the service of Christ. One very famous missionary put it, I think, more simplistically than many others. This would be Jim Elliot. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep. To gain that which he cannot lose. It seems like a contradiction. But it's anything but. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Together, such as we are, open your book. Ask you for help. Study as best we can. And lean on your Holy Spirit to do its work of change. Lord, thank you for a healthy body of believers who are faithful and dedicated to this church you've given to us. Church you've built. We ask your blessings on one family among us and a service later today. Bless them and be with them. And Lord, may it serve as an example to the rest of us. That real living 
involves dying. And Lord, may we look to you, the suffering servant, as one who is willing to give not a portion of it, but all of it, so that we might be yours and yours forever. We thank you. We ask all this in your precious and holy name. Amen. I'm going to close with this benediction taken from the first prayer of a prayer book known as the Valley of Vision. This will be our prayer. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the Valley of Vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Amen.